everybody's been proclaiming that this growth in e-commerce is coming, is coming, is coming for the last 10 years. And we're still below 2% of the total commerce spent in South Africa on e-commerce. So, Hey guys, it's Skalk here, founder of PetHeaven.co.za. And you're listening to The Startup Circle with Steve Fortain. The podcast that gives you insight into the minds of South Africa's most innovative entrepreneurs and businesses. Today we have Skull Kearney on the show. He's the founder of a business called Pet Heaven. It's a business that simply sells pet food online. It's not rocket science. And it's all about managing your margins. Here's the difference. Pet Heaven is a profitable business and has been invested into. A profitable business in today's terms is very tricky to come by. Our overseas counterparts have showed us our tech businesses in Series D, E, F, G rounds are still taking on masses of investment and are not generating any profit at all. There's an old adage out there that says it takes money to make money. So let's hear directly from Skalk firsthand on how he built Pet Heaven from the ground up and he did so in a profitable way. Skalk, welcome to the show. So, so run me through the business model of what makes Pet Heaven tick. You've got a website that people come to, they buy an item off of, uh, you make a margin, and, and then you pump enough volume into the system so that the income from all the margins, all this margin covers all of your expenses, and then you're in the profit zone. What more is there to, to the business model of your company? Well, uh, thanks for having me, Steve. So, yeah, I think you've kind of uh, explained there a bit how it works. Um, there's probably a bit more to it in the sense that in... Pet Heaven, we essentially FMCG uh, retailer. And so the products have quite small margins. And essentially what would need to happen is economies of scale to be able to get to that profit point. Yeah. Uh, what makes Pet Heaven quite unique is that we have scheduled deliveries. Uh, unlike our competitors, we actually allow people to come online and select the dog food that they want or cat food or any consumable product essentially. And then set a frequency to that item. So pet food is pretty predictable in the sense that if you've got a large breed dog and you know you buy a 15 kg bag every month, you know that you're going to need that bag of food every month. So on Pet Heaven, you can simply select that bag, say you want it once monthly or you want it every four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, etc. And we automatically bill your credit card and send you the pet food without you having to ever wonder about buying pet food. That essentially allows us to secure some of our revenues and be able to forecast a bit more accurately about what people will buy, how they're buying it, um, and then obviously helping with the economies of scale to be able to reach profitability. So to some degree, when you started out, you'd have needed to invest a bunch of cash into, into acquiring your stock or the things that you were selling at a later point online. Talk me, talk me through how much money you started this business off with. Was this something that you invested all of your life savings into? Is it one of those stories? Um, no, it's not. So I'm a I'm a big advocate of lean startup methodologies and and MVP. Um, I'm sure anybody mm. that's read Eric Reese's Lean Startup uh, knows what I'm talking about. But essentially, what we did in the beginning was we used vets as our distribution center. So we had agreements in place with vets that if we sold a product. We'd send the order through to them. They'll package the item and the courier will come and collect from them. We made very little to zero money uh, during that process. But what it allowed us to do was test the market to see if there is any viability in this business model. 
and to see if there's any scale. So we we really started with almost no money. Uh, we we did eventually enter a startup accelerator program at 88 MPH. We received 200,000 rand seed investment to you know allow us to develop the system and and take it further. Then from there we started looking at warehousing. But to be honest, we <laughs> yeah, we we went very lean from the beginning. So we were shipping things from our houses, from our garages. We were working for no salary, uh, and and just knew that you know we were onto something, and it was worth pursuing. So we were three founders, uh, which started the business, and all of us just basically gave our time. It was a hundred percent sweat equity. Nobody was drawing a salary. We weren't making any money. But we knew that if we could get to a point of scale and if we could uh, get the business uh, the business kind of strategy to make sense in the long term, that we would have a business and that we could go out and, and raise some funds to, to build the business further. So, so the three of you are literally putting elbow grease into this, working out of your, your garages for, for, for little to no money. As you said, the, initial, the, the way the business looked initially was an order would come in and then you'd reach out to whichever supplier of, of, of whatever that order was and, and then you'd purchase it from them. With your market test and, and, and as you were going through this process of trying to figure out how the business of business worked for the pet food industry, at what point did you suddenly look up and say, hey, we've actually got an investable business here. We've got a business that, it's got, that, that could go into a specific direction and, and make a bunch of cash. Right from the beginning, coming out of an accelerator, they kind of prep you for investment immediately after leaving the accelerator. And that is kind of the understanding. And I think that's kind of a business model that's followed in the U.S. quite quite actively. And I was not sure that that was the way that, that this business would work in South Africa, especially at that point where our revenues were super low. There was zero to no profitability in the business. Uh, none of us were taking a salary, so there was no secure team in the business. I just didn't think we had an investable business so so early on. Where the, where the tipping point kind of started was when two of our, our the co-founders out of, out of the three of us actually left the business to pursue their own things. And I was the only person left in the business. And it came to a tipping point where I realized like, okay, I either need to now invest all of my time and all of my energy into this business to be able to grow it. Or I need to go and find something else and run this on the side. But the potential of the business was was massive. It was really good. We've seen really good growth. You know, for the first two to three years, there was no profitability in the in the company. So we knew that if we wanted to scale this, at some point we would need some investment. And I realized that me going full time into the business and being able to start employing people to be able to scale that, we needed investment. So at that at that stage, I started looking around for, for funding. And was that the, the 88 MPH investment that came in at that point? No, that, so that was the seed funding which we received. So, so the investment point was only was about two to three years after that. So, so that's very interesting because what you've just said is that the, you as a, as a founding team, the three of you started the business. You, you then got into the accelerator kind of round with, with 88 MPH. You, you, you collectively had put in the sweat equity to test the model out. You saw there there was some juice in there. I'm sure the 88 MPH guys themselves saw some juice in in the business, and that's why why, why they brought you on board to the accelerator. And then they gave you cash. And then after that, once 
once you roll out of the, the the accelerator program, your two of of, of the three of the, the co-founding team said, "Well, even though we've put the sweat equity in, even though we've gotten the money, this still isn't for me." So, so what did they see that you didn't, or what did you see that they didn't? Yeah, look, it's also not that straightforward. It was over a period of about two years where where the other founders left the business just purely because, like I mentioned before, we weren't paying ourselves any salary. So yeah. we were actually able to start the business and run it for two to three years with only the initial 200,000 Rand investment in the wow. business. So we we managed the business on a break-even level constantly. We always just made sure that we have had enough money to pay the one or two salaries of the people that we did employ. So you know, people to just help with picking and packing, answering the phones, things like that. For for kind of the top level management, there was no salary. Yeah. So it wasn't sustainable for everybody. I was lucky that at that stage I was studying full time. I went back to go study BCom finance in my later 20s. And so I actually had the, a great opportunity to run the business and study at the same time, which allowed me to not draw salary from the business. But then at that tipping point, kind of when I, when I finished my studies, I knew that that was the, the kind of inflection point for me. It was like either do this full time and, you know, give it everything mm. and make it work or go and find a job. And at that point, the other two founders have already left. So it, it was kind of like a, it was a massive risk on my part, but I, I didn't have anything to lose at that stage because the experience that I was gaining from this business was immense. I mean, I mean, I learned more in the two years in business than I learned in my three-year degree altogether. But also the two of them worked very well hand in hand because whatever I learned in theory, I could apply in practice. And whatever I learned in practice, I could remember that helps me to remember the theory, which then basically complement yeah. each other quite nicely. But, but let's move on to talking about investment. After the 88 MPH process, um, you, you guys took investment and, 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 and to some level you, you'd done some thinking about how the investment model in South Africa worked or how it should work versus the investment model in the States. If you look at some of our, our big brother tech businesses in, in, in other parts of the world, there are business that have, businesses that have taken on heaps and heaps of investment and are often in series E, F, G, H, I, J, K rounds and haven't broken even yet. They've taken on hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of investment, and they're still running at a loss. In South Africa, I think a lot of us look, a lot of business owners down here look, look at examples like that and say, well, actually what I'm going to do is, is create an MVP, a fund it out of, out of my own right as much as I can, and then look for that big ticket investor who's going to dump a ton of cash into my business, um, and, and that's going to take me to the next level. You didn't do it like that. I think... You, the, 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 the journey of Pet Heaven was there was a, an initial investment round and there was a long period in the middle where, where you made things work and not, didn't burn down investor funds and then you actively went seeking investor funds at a later stage. How do you view this, this concept? Yeah, I think that the idea was exactly that. Like, I didn't want to take investment and just burn through cash just because that was the way that, you know, people expect it to be done. Um, if you look at those models in the US, you're quite right. They 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 take a lot of investment, like multiple rounds often. And my theory around that is is that number one is that they've got a massive market. Their market size is is 
is a lot bigger than what it is in South Africa, so that the amount of investment that they're taking is actually recoverable in that market. When you look at the market size in South Africa, it's and especially in e-commerce, it is really still small. There's big room for growth, but everybody's been proclaiming that this growth in e-commerce is coming, is coming, is coming for the last 10 years, and we're still below 2% of the total commerce spent in South Africa is on e-commerce. So we just don't have that market to be able to even recover those those funds if you if you so aggressively fundraise. Then the other part of that is is possibly exit opportunities. So in the US there are multiple big corporates or you know kind of joint ventures or private equity firms that that actively acquire smaller businesses. Whereas in South Africa, that that ecosystem doesn't really exist. So if you're putting that much capital in it, in, into the business, most of these guys rely on a good valuation, on exit, to be able to recover that money for shareholders and investors. And And we just don't have that simply in South Africa. So for me, it was always an approach of wanting to build rather a sustainable business, which we can grow into something that's profitable and long-term value for shareholders, as opposed to growing or or kind of funding something for exit. To be honest, if I had to do it again, I would probably wait even longer before I take my first investment. Because also at your first investment, how do you value a business? there's There's no set way in valuing business. I mean, I studied finance and I'm sure you did as well. And there are there are multiple ways of valuing businesses, but there, there's no clear way to understand how a startup is, is actually valued. And especially if there's no, no profitability or, you know, you just, you're purely going on forecast and on expectations of a certain market future. And, and is that what the thinking was behind going for investment when you did? Did, did you look at what you had and say, well, hey, I've, I've got a business here. I, I, I've got something that actually works and I'm now going to kind of bring in more money to make more money? Or was there another consideration that, 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 that you thought about when you decided to go the investment route? Yeah, definitely. The, that decision point was bring in more money to make more money. Um, I think in my, in my investment pitches that I had, and there were quite a few, I think that's a different story altogether, how long it actually takes to fundraise in South Africa and how much effort it is. Um, but, but the kind of saying was always like, look at what we've achieved over the past couple of years with no money. Imagine if we added some fuel to this fire. That was kind of my, my go-to line. But and, and the concept was basically on that we spent minimal to you know, almost zero money on marketing up to that point. Just purely because of the, the, the structures that we built around our, our technology and making sure that we ranked well in, in Google made sure that we focused uh, quite hectically on on customer service and that helped us to scale organically quite a bit but the tipping point came when we when when I realized that just scaling organically is not going to get us to a good profitability point anytime soon and so you know we we had to we had to raise capital to start investing a bit more in actual marketing and people to be able to execute better on strategies because uh, it was just not viable for one person to to try and do all of that and and expect the same growth. 
So, so we, we, we had TNS from Bridget on the show right in the beginning, and, and he spoke about his investment process and how he was carrying around a, a bulky shoebox-like device filled with wires and, and all sorts of rubbish. And he was showing people, and he said he would not have got an investment if he didn't have this piece of hardware that he could stick in front of people and say, this is what my solution does. And I'd encourage listeners to go and, go and listen to that show if you've got a, a hardware business and you're looking for investment. But but you don't have a piece of hardware. Uh, you definitely can't carry around bags of pet food to to invest in meetings. I, I, I know you've said kind of the, the tagline that you use, like it's we, we're growing well, our costs are well. Chuck in more fuel to this fire and the fire is only going to burn brighter. But But what do you think besides that was the actual selling point that you could walk away or you could say to investors that they, they got their eyes to light up. Because that saying, you know, it takes money to make money is kind of a saying that everybody's using now. It was probably a combination of just a lot of tenacity and, and being able to have built this business with no money um, and, and just showing, showing the growth for the effort that we've put in. So all we really had to our disposal was a really nice looking website and what people were saying about Pet Heaven and our, our growth charts, to be honest. So we, we had to basically use that and prove a case of, you know, what does this look like going forward? If our growth was X and we added money, could we get the growth to Y and how are you going to do that? So a lot of time was spent on actually doing proper business analysis, building a proper business plan, you know, knowing everything about the industry or as much as possible about the industry and making sure that, that I understood not only the pet industry, but understood e-commerce, understood technology, understood finance, how money would be recovered. So you quickly learned these things along the way. And I think I had to allow myself the time to get to that point to know these things and to be confident in my ability to forecast accurately what we're going to do before we could actually raise funds um, as opposed to just standing and thumb-sucking a number and then uh, being held accountable for, for to, towards a target which you've set, which is no grounding in reality. I want to move into the next topic we're, we're going to discuss today, and, and that's that's discipline around you yourself starting a business yourself. You've got something that I call sole founder syndrome, which is you're the only person in this business, uh, and you're the CEO, you're, you're the MD, you're, you're the guy responsible for for setting the the strategic vision. Yes, you've got a bunch of advisors who've now come in during the investment process, and and that's great. But for a long time, it was just you. Once your 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 co-founders had, had kind of left and. And that means that where your business goes is 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 completely subject to what you've got in your head. It's 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 as logical as that. And 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 of course, what you've got in your head is influenced by what you read, by what you listen to, about the people you know, the people you talk to. In some cases, your 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 edu, educational background. Um, but but do you think it's tougher to start a business by yourself, or or is it just quicker because you don't have the the co-founder who you need to get into the frustrating long lengthy conversations with i mean two minds about that to be honest so i think what helped a lot for me in the beginning is that i did a lot of own learning uh, a lot of listening 
to podcasts, reading books. Uh, I was lucky to have studied at the time as well, so I could implement a lot of the things that I was learning there. But having a co-founder is is good in the sense that you can kind of divide responsibilities and allow somebody to focus on what they're good at and be able to then, you know, obviously you'd want to have a co-founder that has complementary skills and as opposed to the same skills as you. And and that really could could help you or propel your business quite a bit bit more. A difficult part for me as as a sole founder was that if there were things that I weren't good at, I had to go and learn them. So it took a bit more time for me to be able to execute on those things when, you know, we couldn't necessarily employ somebody in that space. I had to go and teach myself how to do it. I had to go out, read up on it, you know, reach out to people, get feedback from mentors, network around these things, go to events. You know, it was you have to do these things yourself and there's no other person to look to. With that said, the the decision-making is a lot easier, uh, I would think, but it's also then you're the sole responsibility for whatever happens, um, which which is good and bad. Um, so it depends on your capacity, but it also depends on, you know, how well do you know yourself? How well do you know what your strengths and your weaknesses are? When do you go and, look for external help when you go and ask questions i think um, from an early stage i learned to ask a lot of questions all the time and not only of other people but of myself so whatever decision i was making i would make sure that i follow the five why principle you know ask why five times get to the core root of a problem or something and generally um it it's it's when you're starting a business, it's just problem solving. Um, I think what made it very easy for me to to get into business is that I got to a point where I realized that all all it is for me to run a business is to just solve problems daily. And if I could clearly define the problems, I could find the answers. So all I needed was the ability to know how to or where to look for answers for the questions that I had. Um but what became challenging was when I started looking for, for funding, uh, all my advisors told me, look, you have to at least take a year to, to raise funding. I was very ignorant at the time. I had, a, I had a good network. I've spoken to a lot of investors up to that point before I, before I decided to take investment. And I, I thought it was going to be a quick two to three month exercise. And when you start raising funds, you, you quickly realize there's a lot of back and forth. It took us probably nearly two, two years to actually well, raise the funds. So even though, you know, we, we got to that point, um, you know, like even even when I had the first discussion with the investors that invested now, it took us nine months to actually close the deal. So during that period, you are almost removed from your business. Because you're constantly engaging on things that do not actively grow the business, do not actively focus on growth and revenue and improving margins and things like that. So that is where a co-founder is super helpful to have somebody to remain in the business, ensure that the operations run, make sure that you keep improving your business while the other person's out there looking for funding, kind of positioning the business in front of people and you know, kind of 
doing the, the legwork and getting investment. It's been a pleasure having you on. We're going to end off with, with what I call a, a speed dating round. Uh, just a few questions to, to get to understand more about the man behind the business. Question one, inspiration. What gives you the legs to get out of bed in the morning? I think the thing that motivates me the most is the next challenge. Uh, there's always something that we're working on. There's always the next problem to solve. And that really interests me. Like I've got a real analytical mind and, and constantly want to be solving problems. I thrive on change. So that for me excites me and, and, and keeps me going, to be honest. Best and worst financial decisions? Best and worst financial decisions, uh, personally or in the business? Well, you decide that one. Sure. Um, worst business um, financial decision is uh, buying Bitcoin in December. <laughs> Um, the, the best financial decision was just starting to work for myself, to be honest, not, not taking a salary funnily enough and, and just working, making the decision to work for myself and delaying the, the gratification of, of salary and money and, you know, comfort for something a lot, you know, bigger and more meaningful down the line. What frustrates you? When we probably as a business, we get into a point where we're comfortable and, and just kind of tick along. I think for me, like I said, what motivates me is always having that next challenge. And when I feel that we're reaching a comfort zone, that really makes me uncomfortable because uh, there's always ebbs and flows in business. And when, you, when you're not either in an ebb or a flow, it could go either way. So uh, I'm always actively pushing to to be uh, kind of increasing and growing and, and becoming better and not stagnating and, and just accepting our... our uh, Status quo. Yeah, exactly. Globally and locally, one person that you admire in each? Locally, I would say uh, Nick Haralambas. He's, uh, he's been a very good mentor and friend to me. Um, he's, he's been involved in Pet Heaven... Uh, in more ways than people probably know from from the start of Pet Heaven, from uh, letting Courtney sleep on his couch when when he first started the website, to being my first mentor in in business, being one of our first advisors in the business as well, and then internationally, Tim Ferriss. Reason being is that the his book, The 4-Hour Workweek, was one of the reasons or one of the tipping points for me to actually build up the courage and go into business full-time. I think I've wanted to be an entrepreneur most of my life, but I, I kind of got distracted with a corporate ladder along along the way. And reading his book kind of shifted my mind back to what I actually wanted and, and helped me to to get to the point. And I think even to this day, his podcast, his, his uh, content that he puts out there is super helpful. Um, you know, I play it in the car on the way to work and it always just gives you new ideas to, to kind of, you know, implement in your business and invigorate a bit of, yeah. The courage. next two questions were, we're going to combine them into one. Last book you read and any blogs or podcasts that you religiously follow. I think you've, you've spoken about the Tim Ferriss stuff and I know he's got a book out, he's got a podcast out. I'm sure there's some blog stuff too. 
happy for you to go with those or, or any others that, that we should keep our eye on? Yeah, I think one of the one of the best podcasts that that I like listening to is uh, How I Built This, uh, which is just phenomenal. Uh, similar to this, just covering stories of of people that have started businesses. I always enjoy the the stories of entrepreneurship and business a lot more than the theory or theoretical books, purely because you can learn from other people's experience and it also just gives you ideas for your for your own business. Um, books that I'm reading or have read, uh, to be honest, I'm reading probably about four or five at the same time. Uh, always, uh, I pick up a book and put it down for a bit until I feel like it again. But uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins, I'm reading at the moment. Um, Tipping Point by, uh, I think it's Robert Green, if I'm not mistaken. Um, then I'm reading... I just finished my first fiction book, uh, so I'm not a big reader of fiction. What is the name of that one? It's called Shift uh, by Yu Hao, I think. Um, but yeah, so the 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 thing for me as being an entrepreneur and always reading and always learning is that when you read a business book before you go to bed, your mind doesn't switch off. So I had to make a bit of a shift in and rather reading in the morning or. Mm-hmm reading you know kind of early evening and instead of reading last thing at night otherwise uh, the mind never sleeps and there you have it ladies and gentlemen some great insights shared by skulk on how everybody in tech in south africa should be thinking about investment we shouldn't just be following our, our, our counterparts overseas. Our market is fundamentally different and we should be thinking about investment in a, in a whole new light. Skalk also shares some great insights on what I'm calling soul founder syndrome. How do you as a single person without a partner or co-founder make your business work? And that's all the time we have for, for today's show. If you're a small startup business in South Africa doing something amazing, be sure to check out our Startup Circle Discoveries platform and let us know about you. We're always happy to have a chat and connect you to people who could potentially make a huge difference for your business. Until next time, talk to you soon.